Today's reading is from 2 Kings 13, 14 through 21. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to, used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And a man was being buried. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. The word of the Lord. <laughs> the meeting of the minds happens after the reading. Elisha it is. Elisha works fine as well. Now, now that's right. Now you all will remember. Uh, welcome to the Painted Door. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, for the past couple of days, actually the pastors in uh, this church had a chance to gather with our wives and spend a bit of time together at a retreat center in the northern and western part of Illinois. My wife uh, always says the best of Illinois is when it borrows from other states. And so when you're in the middle of Illinois, it's a little bit of dead, flat cornfield and rather mundane. But when you get near the perimeter and you can borrow from the landscapes of Iowa and Wisconsin or even Kentucky, you get a little bit more beauty. And such was the case for us. We were in that northwest part of Illinois and near both Iowa and Wisconsin, and so we were able to enjoy a beautiful pastoral setting at a retreat center looking out across a grassy valley of farmland that was dotted with trees and carved with fence lines and gentle crescents of grassy hills seemed to stack on top of each other as we looked out over across the landscape. And it was about 70 degrees. And on Friday afternoon, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to take a walk through the landscape. And we made our way down a hill and found a bench that overlooked a serene pond that was surrounded by cattails. And we sat there listening to the light splashing of frogs as they frolicked on the edges of this pond and we noticed the warmth on our backs and the serenity of the setting and we thanked God for spring 
Um, those of you who live in Chicago and are not merely visiting, you know all too well that it has been a rather long winter, five full months, truly, of winter. Uh, but I can tell you that that pales in comparison to the length of the personal and emotional winter uh, that our church has actually endured. It's actually been about three years now of a rather hard season for our church. And it felt, as we were sitting on that bench, my wife and I were reflecting, maybe this now is spring for our community. Maybe we are coming into a brighter time. Uh, we could see life and hope stretching out in front of us. Uh, I can actually mark the winter of our church's hard days according to elder retreats, according to pastor retreats. They actually serve as a good marker for thinking about the time and marking the time. Uh, and so I was thinking about that, have been thinking about that actually over the past month or so. Um, and it occurs to me all the way back in the fall of 2014 was probably the last pastor retreat, the last elder retreat that was marked by unfettered joy and hopefulness. Uh, we were gathering in Michigan uh, for that particular retreat, and we were actually celebrating because we believed at that time that we had come through a cancer scare unscathed. Uh, pastor Greg, who was the pastor over worship and arts in our church, had had surgery in the late summer, early fall to remove some spots of melanoma from his leg, and it appeared as though the doctors had successfully carved out all of that dangerous cancer, and so we were celebrating that at that retreat. We bought Greg a new guitar uh, and got him a card that had on its cover a picture of an old man and had inside our dreams of growing old together scribbled there. It was a sweet time, uh, but winter would come uh, soon thereafter, and the cancer returned like a Chicago storm and buried our dreams in death, and Greg was taken from us in January of 2015, as many of you know, and were with us during that time, and our little church entered into a period of grieving and loss. Um, also a period of great tenderness toward one another um, and an increase in, I think, warmth and grace for one another, an understanding of what it is to move through those hard things together and learn to love one another through that. Um, but also it entered us into a period of time that only seemed to get increasingly difficult. Um, moving from health tragedy and loss of physical life in our friend Greg to then relational challenges and the disintegration of some longtime friendships in our church. It was just about a year later in 2016 that um, some of the pastoral friendships in this church began to go through great hardship. And by the end of 2016, another of our pastors was preparing or considering, I should say, uh, leaving our church 
with his family. And uh, we were on a retreat at that time. This would be November of 2016. And just like two days ago, when my wife and I took a walk and found a bench overlooking a pond, uh, we did so then as well in November of 2016. Uh, We were retreating in Wisconsin at that time, so more rolling hills and grassy farmland. Um, But all I remember from that day is sitting at that pond on that bench overlooking that serene setting, but there being no serenity in our minds or in our hearts. There were heavy thoughts in our minds and our hearts, and there were actually dark clouds shrouding the sun on that day, and it was a time full of gloom and expectation that more hard days were ahead. It was the dead of winter uh, for us. And winter upon winter seemed to heap up over and over for a stretch of 30, even 40 months. The winter for our church and for our pastoral leadership. If you'd have told me in 2014, in late 2014, that our safe and stable, seemingly safe and stable pastoral team of four would be cut in half over the next two years by way of death and the disintegration of friendship. Uh, I would not have believed you, but also I would have pushed that thought as far to the side as possible because it would have been too dreadful of a thought to even consider. It would have been a fear better left unimagined. Uh, And looking back now, I can see, actually, that losing friends, losing that safe place of pastoral leadership that we'd come to rely on, uh, me personally come to rely on it, and our church community had come to rely on it, that the prospect of losing that was among my greatest fears at that time. I didn't know that at the time because I didn't anticipate that it would happen. But it was certainly among my greatest fears. I could not have even considered it. I would not have wanted it. I would not have chosen it. Um, And even the suggestion of it would have been too dreadful a thing to consider. And that fear came true. The source of the fear had to do with questions. How in the world would we be able to shepherd this church without that team? How would we be able to care for each other? How would we be able to cultivate a family, a church family, without our most precious and close church family members intact? There was a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding about how that could even happen or how we might even be able to do that. And so when that worst fear was realized, all of those questions came to the fore. I did not want this winter. Uh, Who does? Whoever wants winter, you sick and twisted ones among us. (laughs) Um, But maybe, as it turns out, It is the things that we fear most that are often the very things where God means to meet us with himself and to meet us with new life.
It's the things that we most want to resist and most want to avoid that actually God intends to use most graciously in our lives. And so this past Friday, just two days ago, sitting on that bench with the sunshine gently burning my albino neck, Every spring I have to remember that I'm an albino. I forget because the winters are long and gentle on my tender flesh. Um, But sitting there, my wife and I could see life and hope out ahead of us. We could see new life laying out in front of us. It was spring, and we felt that both viscerally in the sunshine and in our minds and in our hearts and here we are now, church, in the season of Easter Tide. And Easter Tide is a 50 day long celebration of resurrection, a 50 day long celebration of Easter. It's a celebration of spring, it's a celebration of the winter passing and new light and new hope and new life coming to the fore. And to honor that season, our church has been working our way through the nine instances recorded in scripture of resurrection, or rather I should say eight instances of resuscitation and one instance of resurrection. Eight instances of people being backed out of death, still yet to face death at the end of their lives, and one instance with the Lord Jesus of a person defeating death once and for all, finally, establishing and proving God's plans for death. But what I hope we can see in all of these stories is that God has big plans for death. And importantly, that God does not dread the winter. It is not on God's agenda to spare us from the winter or to take us around the winter or to prevent the winter from happening because he is the Lord of it and he is the author of spring. Our story of resuscitation for today is a short one and it's a bit bizarre. The year is around 800 B.C., King Joash has recently come into power in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Joash is busy defending the northern kingdom of Israel from attacks uh, from the nation of Syria, the neighboring nation of Syria to the east. And Joash is convinced that having the prophet Elisha in his corner is key, essential, for the continuing success and flourishing of the northern kingdom of Israel, even though Joash himself is not faithful. Joash himself does not consider the God of Yahweh someone worth pledging allegiance to, someone worth worshiping. Nevertheless, he is very thankful to have the prophet of that God bringing the favor of that God to Israel as they engage with the Syrians in battle, and he's convinced that Elijah's, Elisha's faithfulness to Israel is essential for the sustained success of Israel. And so when Elisha falls deathly ill, when he faces his deathbed, King Joash, this evil king, is terrified. 
The scriptures tell us in Second Kings chapter 13, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And we can see here that Joash is, in a way, in effect, honoring Elisha. He refers to him as my father twice, which was an ancient honorific, an ancient way of extolling a person was to label them father. We still do that in some contexts and cultures in our modern world. And here Joash is honoring Elisha, putting him on that pedestal, my father, my father. But his very next words reveal the nature of that honor. Joash is concerned that now the chariots and the horsemen of Israel will be lost. He's honoring Elisha only for what it is that Elisha can provide by way of military benefit. He believes that if Elisha is to die, that soon thereafter the chariots and horsemen of Israel will be crushed by the armies of Syria. And so this is a hopeless, faithless cry as he considers the impending death of Elisha and looks on Elisha taken down with an illness that surely is going to end his life. But Elisha knows something that Joash does not. Joash is facing his greatest fear, the loss of Elisha, the destruction of his armies, the end of his kingdom, the end of his kingship, perhaps even the end of his life. This is leading him to hopelessness and terror. What Elisha knows that Joash does not is that God has big plans for death. So Elisha tells Joash to fire an arrow out of his window toward the east. That is to say, in the direction of Syria. It was customary in those days to fire a victory arrow in the direction of your enemies when the battle was in hand, when it was clear that the battle was to be won. And Elisha is telling Joash, this battle is yours. The Syrians will be defeated. You will overcome them. He instructs him to fire this arrow. He lays his hands, his sickly hands, on Joash as Joash fires this arrow to the east, a declaration of victory from the prophet Elisha. He is, in essence, telling Joash that what has eluded you throughout my life, God will now be granting you after my death. Elisha knows that God has big plans for death, that God is not threatened by death. His plans are not ruined by death. And Elisha is saying to Joash, you need not fear this dark moment, nor the winter that follows it. God will be in it and bring victory to you in it. And Elisha then instructs Joash, strangely, to fire off his remaining arrows into the ground. The translation that we read says that Elisha instructed him to strike the ground, but better said would be to shoot at the ground, to fire off these remaining arrows into the ground, to spend all of his remaining arrows in this way. 
and Joash accommodates Elisha to a degree. He fires off three of his remaining arrows, but then has had enough of these games. And Elisha is not pleased. We read, Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What Elisha is picking up on, what he's seeing in King Joash, is the faithlessness of a man who is dreading winter. The faithlessness of a man who has given up hope in the face of Elisha's impending death. A man who believes that death can thwart the power of God, can thwart the kingdom of God, can thwart the purposes of God. A man who sees death as an undefeatable enemy. Death as the end of things. Death as ruining things. And he's saying, why be hopeful in the face of so bleak an enemy as this? Why be hopeful in the face of winter? Why be hopeful in the face of losing this prophet of Yahweh who is the one connection point to this great God who has rescued Israel throughout its history? Why be hopeful when the prophet of God is on his deathbed? Of course, we ask the same question routinely in our lives. Why be hopeful when my marriage is collapsing? Why be hopeful when a friendship is disintegrating? Why be hopeful when a family member is betraying me or mistreating me? Why be hopeful when I've experienced some terrible trauma? Why be hopeful when I have ruined my life or train-wrecked my life in some way? Why be hopeful in the face of tragedy? Why be hopeful when I've contracted some terrible disease? Why be hopeful when I've been abandoned or rejected by someone that I love? We are prone to throw up our hands in the face of dead things, prone to lose hope when things die around us, when relationships die, when people die, when we face our own mortality. We give up easily. We're not hopeful in the face of winter. Well, Elisha dies the text tells us. And while he is being placed in a tomb, another man's corpse is hastily thrown into Elisha's tomb by men who are rushing to flee from marauding Moabites invading that area, men who were meant to bury that corpse properly, but to save their own skin, throw this corpse, this unnamed corpse of a man, into the tomb with the dead body of Elisha. And the scripture records that when this corpse touches the bones of Elisha, instantly the man is revived and stands to his feet. What a bizarre little tale this seems to be. Um, How strange and unusual it sounds. But in the very next breath, in the very next sentences and paragraphs that immediately follow, the writer of Second Kings goes on to tell us that Israel strikes down Syria in three successive battles, just as the prophet Elijah had said, 
And now you begin to see a story playing out that is not so unusual, not so strange, but in fact is the normal course of God's plan. God brings more life from Elisha's dead bones than he ever did from Elisha's living flesh. God brings more life into Israel through Elisha's death than he does Elisha's living and prophetic ministry. God has bigger plans for death than he does for our lives. He means to do more in the very places that we are convinced he has stopped working. This is the open secret of the world. And it's the open secret of our lives. This is very difficult to see, but it's plainly there. That God does more work in the dying of things, amid dead things, than he does amid living things. He does his most extraordinary work, his greatest acts of grace, his greatest interventions, his greatest demonstrations, his greatest gifts of life, no less, right in the middle of dead places, in graveyards. God meets us in seemingly dead things. I look over the past three years in our church with the loss of our friend and pastor, Greg, to cancer and the breakdown of longtime friendships. And I think maybe I'm starting to see, beginning to glimpse, maybe some of you can glimpse it with me, how God is meeting us and has met us throughout that winter and provided new life for us there. We can see clearly new pastors emerging. We can see new friendships emerging. We can see God doing tender things in that regard, new bonds of love being formed. Maybe harder to see, harder to see how God is working or to acknowledge it as his work is what I can tell you for my part, which is that over these three years, I've had a chance to see myself more than I had previously and to see my need for Christ in a more earnest and desperate way than I had seen previously. It's never been so clear to me than as over these past 30 to 40 months of just how much I need the Lord and just the depth of my brokenness and even the unwillingness and inability to see it to run with it in ways that wreak havoc in the world unwittingly, consistently, and in a way that cries out for rescue. Winter has a way of pressing you toward the author of spring, pushing you to hope in him, to lean into him. Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha, before raising her brother from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? Do we believe this, church? Certainly must be among the hardest of things to believe. That God means to meet us in dead and dying things. That it is not hopeless when things seem to be falling apart, when the darkness comes. Do we, as a church, mean to let fear overwhelm us when the winter comes? Do we, need, do we mean to let fear guide and rule us when the darkness comes? Or do we hope in the one who raises the dead and can raise all things? One crucial lesson that I've learned over these past few years is that you can borrow from the faith and hope of others when you feel your own courage failing. When the darkness is overwhelming, when the winter is at its bleakest, there are other people that God has put you around who are full of faith and hope, enough faith and hope to carry the day. And you can ask them to lend that to you. You can lean heavily on them. You can trust the faith that is in them. You can trust the Christ that is in them. Even when you doubt the faith of your own heart, even when you doubt the hope of your own heart, you wonder where Christ is, where some felt experience or knowledge of Christ in your own person may be. You can look to your brothers and sisters people who are feasting on him and treasuring him and hoping in him. And you can ask them to uphold you, to hold you through those times, to be with you through those times. Likewise, when you are on the other side, when you see a brother or a sister languishing in some gloom, moving through hard days, moving through some winter, you can be a person who offers faith and hope to them. You can lend what is in your soul, the hope that is in you, the words of Christ that you have for them. Either way, whether we are in need of borrowing faith or in a position to lend it, God provides for his people in winter. He has provided new pastors for our church, But even more than that, he has provided each of you, every person of faith who is here. You are Christ. You are the hands and feet of Christ. You have the very ministry of Christ in your hearts, in your words, in your touch, in your embrace. All of Christ is present in and among his people to be offered and served to one another. So that as we face winters together, Christ remains among us. We lean on one another during those times and receive Christ from one another. Let me encourage you, no matter the length of time or the period of maturation that your faith has gone through, if you are a person of faith, Christ is alive in you. You can trust the ministry of his word and the ministry of his heart to be breaking out of you. Have no fear in those moments. Serve him to one another. Offer him to one another. Speak boldly to one another. Pursue one another. Move toward one another in full confidence and assurance that Christ will do what he means to do through you. 
It does not depend on you. It does not depend on the seeming maturity of your knowledge or faith. Christ is alive in the simplest of things, even dead things. God has big plans for death. And what's so important to know about God's big plans for death is that he is not waiting for the final unveiling, for the final resurrection to begin bringing them to pass. He is performing resuscitations among lost things among us. It's started now. God's plans for death are being worked out now. They're being worked out among us in communities of faith. He's meeting us in our dead places. So don't despair. Don't let fear rule you. No matter how dark the season may be, no matter how much you may feel as though you're wandering or lost, Christ reigns in those places. He is the Lord of the winter. He is the author of the spring. You can put your confidence in him and lean on others who do alongside you. I'll close with this. Helen Keller, the great writer who was born famously unable to see or hear, once said, Death is no more than passing from one room into another. But there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to see. This was a woman who believed that God grants even more life in death or amid death. Of course, she was hoping for the final unveiling of that when the scales would fall from her eyes and she'd be able to see. But in the long winter of life that she lived without sight and without hearing, she put her hope in the Lord of that winter and waited for him to author spring. Let it be so among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in dark places. We thank you for Eastertide and the lapping of new life up on the shores of this broken place. Give us eyes to see that shoreline and to hope in that new world that's breaking into ours. Help us to help each other see that. Give us eyes for the struggling among us. Teach us to lean on one another and to ask for help. Break us of our independence and our insistence on fighting our way through it alone. Make us tender people. Break our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.